This episode is dedicated to David O'Reilly, author of Savage Shadow. You're listening to Missing Panther, supported by Audio-Technica. I was just walking my dogs and I looked across to the other hill and I just saw it slinking along. It was much longer than what my dog. It would have been a couple of metres long easily. I said to my wife at the time, I, said, I think I've just seen a panther. I, said, I think we should um, maybe get the hell out of here. And I thought, Jesus Christ, that's a tumour or something. I, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I was looking at, that it was actually right there. See where it's eaten the head, most of the ribs one side, intestines out and laid them next to the body. You can see where it had gone in right into the cavity and eaten out the kidney. Right in front of the car, I slammed on the brake. It was longer than the car is wide. It was not black, it was tan. We were out there hunting a cat with a dog that knew cougar scent. I was pretty certain we had found a fair piece of evidence that could be photographed, that could be documented, it could be measured. They're classified dangerous pests. If the council captures this cat, it will likely be curtains. Do you walk around your property at night? Never. No way. Not in a fit. People say, well, it's just folklore. Folklore doesn't kill animals and pop up in front of 263 witnesses. As we've had numerous people spot this panther around the whole country. So much anecdotal evidence, it just mounts up, it mounts up. On this show, we've had Ben Bede, the man who's done the Missing Panther Mm -hmm. podcast. We've had panther experts. We've been sending the cast into the zoologists overseas to get their opinion. And what do they say? They say cat. Large cat. Very large. Even the experts can't rule out black panthers or a similar large cat. They appear to look like leopards or jaguars, a lot of the animals. The former manager of Asian animals believes big cats could easily adapt here. Yeah, certainly for uh, Puma, it's uh, very consistent with that of the uh, United States. When we get a number of reports of animals, and that sort of indicates that you know a number of people are seeing it. Really, it's about taking those reports, verifying the species, and then trying to determine whether there's an established population of those species in the wild. I have been very excited to talk to this person. His name is Ben Bede. He is the creator of the Missing Panther podcast. We've got to address the elephant in the room. In this day and age, with all the technology, if, if there really is big cats running around the southwest, why is no one taking yep. a picture of it? I have spoken to so many people who have been following these cats for years. Vancouver Island has populations of cougars there. Even in these places, they have trouble photographing them themselves. They, oh, they put know they're cameras there. Out. They know they're there, and they're still really hard to find. And that's with people actively looking for them. When you see them with your own eyes, and then there's no doubting that they are here in Australia and they're panthers. That's the only thing I can describe them as. By tracking these animals, we have come to respect their ability to roam long distances, raise their families and kill their prey without being observed. We have only rarely seen them running across roads or into the shadows, so we feel privileged to be among the few people who know that they really are there.
before I started this podcast, I always had this thought that perhaps I'd end up debunking the whole story and crushing my childhood fantasies in the process. But I had to keep honest in my pursuit of truth and keep an open mind that perhaps I'm wrong about all this. But after three years of digging around, listening to witness accounts, speaking with experts, all I could find was a trail of evidence leading only to one conclusion, that something resembling a big cat is definitely out there. One of the most rewarding parts of this journey has been to observe others who were quite sceptical on the topic, only to change their view once they took the time to hear people's stories or eventually seeing something for themselves. Benny Boy, oh, I am fully yeah. converted oh. now that I know that they're real and now that I've heard your stories. I am a believer in the this oh. creature you speak of, mate. Oh, welcome aboard, George. I'm a sceptic, but I want to know the truth. Come along. Listen, I want you guys to listen to all seven apps and then give me a call with some more questions. Oh, Absolutely, mate. Yeah, I'm sad. 7.42 on Triple M. It's Mitchell and Michael. And joining us on the line once again is a man who tries to track down all the big mysterious animals out there around Australia. He's from Missing Panther Podcast. G'day, Ben. We <laughs> featured in your podcast. We're so excited. It's extremely well put together. And right. you know what? I think I'm starting to become a bit of a believer. Right. Converted. And so then I started to listen to your podcast, started to read what other people had said. And it made complete sense, Ben. If people told me that those things were there years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. I thought bullshit because someone would have seen something like droppings or a skeleton or fucking something, right? Man, I saw it with my own eyes. And I'm not kidding you, mate. This thing would have killed us. If every journalist chose to seek a path of truth over sensationalism, fear and catchy headlines, obviously we'd all be more well informed. But unfortunately, we live in a world where this just isn't the case. Clickbait, ratings, newspaper sales, or reading from a script written by an invisible superior seem a lot more important than truth and actual journalism. The pieces of the puzzle probably haven't come out, mate, because there's no one like you really digging any deeper. You know, journalists in this country are pretty bloody lazy, so all they're going to do, if someone's got an eyewitness account, they'll just do the most basic entry-level form of journalism on that. You should stick with it, brother. I think it's great. And just because it's unlikely doesn't mean it's not true. So it's not every day you'd see the head journalist of a reputable newspaper tackling a story about big cats roaming the Western Australian bushland and doing it in a methodical, honest and genuine way. In the late 70s, David O'Reilly was running the Perth branch of the Australian newspaper when he decided to follow up on a story about farmers setting up traps for a mysterious bee killing their livestock down in quartering. Although David too was quite sceptical, it didn't stop him from conducting one of the deepest dives on Australian big cats than any other journalist to this day. David spoke with every farmer that had a story to tell and was willing to share it with him, taking notes on every sighting, cross-examining each witness, and even going out with hunters all night spotlighting, regardless of how uneasy it made him feel, especially on the night when one of the hunters took a shot at what he claimed was a puma and potentially hitting it. In principle, the all-night search seemed a good idea, but when we got into the thicker timber country, we all became uneasy. The prospect of being suddenly confronted by a wounded animal of some size enthused no one. David O'Reilly even kept in close touch with government authorities, who seemed to duck and weave a lot of the hard-hitting questions put before them. And in doing so, David began to notice a pattern of scrappy research and dodgy handling of paperwork. Not only were regional APB officials not informed of a circus accident involving the escape of exotic cats, but all records that could conceivably throw light of the incident appeared to have been destroyed. This only made David press harder and begin to form a belief that perhaps the farmers in quartering were actually onto something. 
Although the relationship between farmers and the Agricultural Protection Board was at an all-time low, the APB still had a duty to be proactive in their investigation, or at least pretend to be. So the APB reached out to a local farmer who recently moved to WA from the States and happened to have a wealth of experience tracking and capturing mountain lions in Montana. At the end of the 1960s, Bob Newman came to Perth with his family seeking his fortune. Bob was a product of genuine American cowboy lifestyle and over the years captured and killed a countless amount of cougars. Bob Newman was asked by the APB to go out and check out the property in question and give his opinion on the farmer's claims. The APB paid for Bob's expenses to get his horse and float down to quartering so he could scout around for a few days and give his evaluation. And lucky for me, Bob at 90 years of age, still sharp as a tack, was happy to chat about the time the APB invited him down to quartering. Considering the elusive nature of mountain lions, I asked Bob how was it that he was able to capture so many of them, and what he thought of all the stories down in quartering. There used to be a $50 bounty on mountain lions years ago, and that was in the 30s and 40s, and that was a lot of money then, $50. In the wintertime, there's no work, like you can't be a carpenter, nothing too cold, and, and so the only way you could live is go out and uh, with a trap line and, and catch different types of animals and skin them and sell their hides. And whenever we had a fresh snow, we'd drive the mountain roads in the high country and look for tracks going across the road. Check them over, and, and when we seen a track, we'd turn the dogs out. And, them hounds smell of it, but they always knew the way the tracks went. They would sniff around and they had to have a good nose to always know you couldn't fool them. Uh, but there was enough of a scent that they would, they'd never go backwards. They'd always go down the track the right, right way. And they headed the, out the way the cats went. And you wonder how in the hell they could figure that out but, with their nose, but they can. And the dogs would put them up a tree and then we'd get them. Well, somebody uh, knew about me and stuff and knew I was from Montana, and uh, they rang up and got in touch with me. Well, they heard that I'd hunted a mountain lion and, and wanted to know if, they, if I would be interested in coming down, and I said, yeah, and they had the Ag Department first time take me down there. And I went down uh, two or three di different times, and I rode, rode horses through there. I think they was good, honest people, and, and uh, they had different things that they showed me. Different little things that kind of made me think that they sure could be. They've had a couple tracks that they showed me that was in the mud. It was round, and he had pictures and stuff where uh, they had killed uh, a big lamb. The mountain lion, usually when they kill, the first thing they like to eat is their liver, and they get in because there's no bones at the back of the rib, and they go in from there and get the liver, so. Yeah, they had killed some lambs, kind of like that. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a mountain lion. It sure could be some kind of a, a big cat. If there was a pair of them where they are, could raise young ones, by now there'd have to be quite a lot of them down there. It's an ideal place for a uh, mountain lion to live, too. They would live good down there because they'd be able to get a few sheep now and then, easy to kill. 
not hard to get a hold of, so they, they wouldn't be going hungry. Oh yeah, they would love it. There's different things that kind of made you, me think that it sure could be. Yeah, I wouldn't mind going back and talking to see the, uh, some of them old fellas. The stories that some of them said, they seem to jump up over the rocks. Sound like a mountain lion. APP officers were very critical of the claims made by the property owners, leaving a massive divide between farmers and government. Confrontations between APB men who were sent out to deal with the problems became more regular. It was clear from the beginning that the APB officers were sent out to debunk all the stories rather than help them out. The claims that the feline paw prints were those of a pig were not only laughable to local farmers, but also the fact that the time reports of pigs in the area were virtually non-existent. In a desperate attempt to counter the farmer's claims, an APB official had allegedly released a feral pig on one of the local's properties. The farmers were assured that the APB official responsible for this would be taken off the quartering inquiry and from the area. Embarrassed by their own suggestion of it all being the work of feral pigs, an APB official sneakily tracked one from another region and released it on a farm nearby to give his conclusion a little more credibility. In a bizarre twist to the story, I noticed this very same APB officer, now long retired, following and trolling the comments section inside of big cat pages on social media. You have to be joking. Those farmers are up to their armpits of that bullshit scam. He was a bullshit and wanker who wrote lies about me. Enough said. Don't split airs with me, boy. You weren't even born when this event happened. You're just another wannabe. Viewing your profile says it all. You tossers probably believe in unicorns as well, you sick puppies. I made several attempts to get in touch with the retired APB official to give him the opportunity to explain his side of the story. But as predicted, all my requests were just met with silence. Not every APB official shared the same critical opinion on the farmer's claims. Graham Blacklock from the Cogenut branch of the APB was initially skeptical on the idea of mountain lions in the area. That was until he went out to see things with his own eyes. Later on, an APB officer with actual experience on exotic animals joined the investigation. Graham Blacklock, who'd grown up in South Africa, had such extensive knowledge of big cats that he was regularly offered employment in circus organisations and popular zoos. After months of investigating and witnessing something himself while spotlighting with local farmers, Graham formed a belief that all of the farmers' claims were now justified. I was eventually able to track down Graham, but unfortunately he wasn't able to talk with me due to health reasons. In the process of looking for Graham, I got chatting with an old work colleague of his. Roger, who was a student at the time, completed his work experience at the APB, working directly under Graham Blacklock. Roger, who now works in the field of biology and agricultural science, shares of his time working with Graham, as well as his introduction to agriculture in rural WA. I went to Kojunup uh, District High School. Uh, we had some work experience. I was in year 10. I went out with Graham Blacklock, who's the local uh, Agricultural Protection Board, APB, here in WA. He, he really was very serious about protecting the environment. So it's very serious. He knew his stuff. As an APB officer, he could, he could basically have the powers of a policeman. He could go into any property. Our first job, I was visiting all these farmers, we're going out and there were sightings of this cougar. And so I thought, oh, this is fantastic. So we went out to Boscobel area, which is sort of north-west of Kojanup. 
And there's a farmer, the night previously, he'd uh, seen, as his tractor lights went around, they saw these eyes of a large animal, and then it took off and jumped the fence. So it wasn't a fox, it wasn't a dog. He thought it was a big cat. I don't know whether they called it a cougar or... When you're dealing with farmers, they're probably the most reliable sort of witnesses around because they're so down to earth. They're salt of the earth. So, so when a farmer says, "Yeah, ah, oh, you know, I saw a big cat," you know, it's not he saw a feral cat. It's not that he saw a fox because if you're on the land, you just know if you see a shape, you know what it is. They know their land really well too. When you've had that background, you kind of know what. When you see something unusual, you go, "Oh, that's that's different." It's not like fishing tails, you know. Farmers don't do that. <laughs> They tend to tend to underplay things. It was a legitimate sighting, and we were we were investigating. So we went out. It was a sheep carcass. The sheep had died, and they noticed this thing had been dragged uh, quite a distance. Now foxes and things don't do that, so it had been dragged away in the paddock. And so there were these tracks, and they were palm of your hand size, like. And uh, Graham was quite supportive. He was taking plaster casts and. I remember him, you know, explaining how it wasn't a dog print, it was definitely a cat print. He said it was a cat, it wasn't a dog, and it was big. It certainly wasn't a feral cat. The evidence was there. I thought, well, you know, they're cat traps. Basically, next door where this other farmer was, he said, oh, yeah, kids, um, they were down playing in the creek, and this thing was up on a rock watching them. And they got scared and took off. And that night, they heard sounds of cougars and that screaming in the bush. Kind of so he went out. And he goes, oh, you better go check out these caves at this property not far away. So off we go. There was quite deep fissures and one you could walk, like I could walk into. And it was quite a, a decent cave. There's great black, black light. He goes, right, young boy, here's a torch. You go down, you go down the entrance, flash your torch around. I'm going to take my shotgun. I'm going to shoot down the fissures, like on the surface, the little cracks and things. I'm going to shoot down there and scare him out. If he's there, you'll see him. He'll come towards you. And I'm like, hold this torch, shaking. But I could hear these muffled booms as he, as he shot these shotguns <laughs> through these visits. That's work experience. <laughs> yeah, I teach science. I teach uh, in a biological area. My background is ag science, biology. Having worked in government departments, you know, I have a healthy cynicism. I think you've got to be... Like, science is really built on... Uh, reasonable evidence and you live your life based on reasonable evidence if you don't make decisions based on absolutes a high level of evidence that's absolutely out because you, you just wouldn't end it wouldn't go out your front door i mean you can't live your life like that so science is meant to be this sort of altruistic group of people who who are all trying to discover the truth but in actual fact when you do go to any high level of science it's people protecting their butts because they've spent years, you know, researching a particular thing and it becomes a sort of a, you know, their whole life's invested in it. You know, the last thing they want to do is find out someone discovers something which overturns it. It's actually not quite as pure as the people think. You know, the general public think, oh, it's science, you know, scientists, scientists are out to discover truth. In actual fact, it's not, not quite like that. Because there's no investment to tell stories. I think they're more concerned that there was something out there. You know, it was real stuff. Graham said it was a big cat. I remember thinking, oh, this is this is a big thing. God bless to Graham Blacklock. He was a wonderful man, and I know he's uh, not, not the best at the moment, but if ever I hear this podcast, my best wishes to him and his family.
and uh, what a, he made a difference. He was a wonderful man and uh, certainly impacted my life. When sceptical APB officers with no background on exotic wildlife at all reported back to their superiors, it was documented as science. But when Graham Blacklock, even with all of his years of experience, had something to say on the topic, it was just ignored. Regardless of what all this means, big cat sightings have continued for years in and around the southwest. Deb recently moved to the country in February this year, only to see something that made her second guess her knowledge on what animals actually should be out there. We've recently moved here. My daughter, my 14-year-old and I, were going on what we call brown sign adventures where we just follow a trail and see where we end up to explore the area. So we went, end up in Walpole. We were having fun there, took some photos, and then we're driving back from there to Manjum Up. We were, yeah, we're driving along just chatting, listening to music, we always do, and marvelling at some of the pretty trees and how it changes and it's a bit eerie sometimes. It would have been about 3.30, probably about half an hour out of Manjum Up you know, country road, but a very open area, you know, no cars on the road. It was 3.30 in the afternoon, so it was very light. I just saw on the side of the road this black panther-looking cougar-type large animal. I was trying to process what I was seeing because it was sort of just to the edge of the road, off the road, where the gravel part is, and sort of walking along the side on the left-hand side of the road. And I just couldn't quite connect what was happening in front of me because I thought, what am I missing here? What was that? because of the way it moved and this long tail was very dark and it was a large dog size but sort of a long leaner body so he was like what am I missing here and I felt a bit stupid I thought I just have to go home and google and I'm obviously a pretty ignorant city chick and I need to learn about the country more that was my thoughts I kept saying to Lola what did we just see what was that it's just so bizarre we both just kept going what I said, I'm going to Google when I get home because there's obviously something that looks similar that I don't know about and I feel really stupid asking anyone because they're thinking, how could you not know that? So I did that and there was nothing I could come up with that would even remotely look like that. It just couldn't correlate my mind because of the movement. That's what is what stands out in my mind as I replay it all the time. We'd just come through a heap of big tall trees and very thick, dense um, forest and this was a bit more open, this area. Uh, it was the tail and it was the, the long body. It was just this very sleek cat movement, just very black and just very sleek movement with a really long tail. That's what made me go research when I got home because I just couldn't get my head around it. I had never even heard of any kind of urban myth or story or anything. It wasn't until a post came through on one of the local pages of a person telling a story and gave these coordinates of this panther. And I went, oh my goodness, that's what happened to me. And it took me back to the moment. I thought, oh wow, it's not just me. And then I read all the comments underneath of some people really, yep, definitely. And other people just completely mocking this person. And I thought, yeah, I'm not telling anyone about this. But it made me feel better that I wasn't going crazy. It wasn't that I thought I was didn't see it. It was just more that I didn't know how to explain it. It just didn't make sense. I then searched people and comments on posts. And there was very clearly two schools of people, people that mocked it and people that felt like me. You can't not see it. If it's you've seen it, you've seen it. I can't change that. I can't say it's all just stories because I know what I saw. So it's hard to process that when there's people saying, so I just won't tell anyone. Why would you make up something out of thin? It's not like I'm going telling everyone about it. I don't really want anyone to know and be mocked. It's, there's no benefit of that to me. It's just very strange. It was all very bizarre thing to experience, especially when we hadn't long lived here. And what are the odds? It was a weird introduction to the country. <laughs>
just south of Donnybrook, Sharon was driving her son to sport when they witnessed something odd cross the road just metres from them. So I was actually driving. I had my uh, my mum visiting me in the southwest, and we lived in Bridgetown. My son was playing state basketball, and we were taking him to training in Bunbury. We were sort of just south of Donnybrook. I was just driving along and saw this huge black animal run across the road from the east to the west. I ran across the road, then bound up an embankment on the side, and honestly, it was one of those moments. Like it, the whole thing lasted all of. 10 seconds, I suppose, but driving, thinking, what the hell was that? Like that was as big as a, like my, one of my girlfriends has got a really, had a really large um, purebred black Labrador and it was as big as that dog, but it moved like a cat and it had a long tail like a cat. And the way it bounded up the embankment was like a cat. You know how you kind of hesitate and you, did I see that, did I not? And then before I could speak, my mum was in the front seat, my son was in the back and like they both went, what the hell was that? And we all saw it. All right, it's kind of gives you gives you the heebies a little bit because you're thinking that's not meant to be there, and um, yeah. But all three of us saw exactly the same thing, and we're all a hundred percent convinced. And yeah, then ensued a long conversation about these things. That yeah, we all still talk about it, and I think it was really cool. And I know what I saw. You know, when you see something that's in a place that it doesn't belong, you feel a bit uncomfortable in your tummy. You know, so and I just I can't see how so many people can see the same thing and there be nothing there. You know, but I feel like I've been shown something really special. I believe there's a lot in this world that we don't really understand. So, you know, I think it was magical. I think it was a magical experience. I loved it, and I love that I've got that. It's a treasured memory. Jim is no stranger to life on the land, but when he moved to Australia and witnessed something unusual out of his window, he had to check the local field guide again in case he missed something. So it was about two years ago. My wife came home from work one day and she said, Jim Bob bought a horse. So that was the sort of, that was the catalyst that led us to buying this farm out in Wurraloo. Wurraloo is sort of on the edge of the John Forrest National Park and we bought this 40 acres, a lot of it was overgrown. So when we first got the place, yeah, it was fairly unkept. So I, I grew up on a farm, Ben, in the UK. So, you know, used to animals, used to sort of being around stuff, used to the country. I also shoot a longbow, so I'm really into my medieval archery. I shoot a longbow. So on the grass outside my front window, I shoot from there down the field. So. The reason for telling you that is it gives me an idea of distances. So I shoot the longbow off my front grass about 240 metres straight down the field. One morning, about nine o'clock in the morning, stood at the kitchen window with my wife and we see this animal. It's moving away from us at about a 45 degree angle. Now I've got two Labradors. My my biggest Labrador, Ted, he's 45 kilos. I have a, an idea of sort of, you know, I can judge distances and I can judge sort of the size of something. This this thing was at least as half a, as big again as Ted. So it was sort of 60 to 70 kilos, this thing was. And the most amazing thing was, Ben, it was moving at speed, but it was effortless. My wife turned to me and she said, what the f is that? big black tail that was like upright and it was moving effortlessly that the speed in which things this thing is moving we both saw it if it turns round and heads this way it's going to be at the front window in 15 to 20 seconds the speed in which it's moving this thing was effortless the way that it moved and it moved with purpose and it moved with speed it was black yeah it was absolutely black 
years ago, Ben, I was I went over to Kenya. I was on safari in Kenya. We were in Tsavo National Park. We went like lion spotting and all the all the things that you do out there. So I've come face to face with a lion. There was something primeval in a human being that when you meet an apex predator, that you're like you're in a, you're in the presence of an apex predator. And I remember like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I was genuinely like proper. I was scared to the core when this lion roared. And I had exactly the same feeling when I saw this thing. It was a predator. It scared me. The speed in which it moved, the size of it, the back of my place, Ben, you go into the John Forest National Park. There's literally hundreds of thousands of acres of, you know, my, my wife goes riding horses out there and she has to take a GPS to make sure. There's literally hundreds of thousands of acres which you can get lost into. A year went by and a friend of mine came up to see me one day at the farm. He, he's like one of my best mates and we were just sitting chatting. And I said, here you go, I've got a fucking strange one for you. So I told him what I saw expecting him to sort of just have a giggle at me and like and then he said to me i know what you saw you saw a panther then it turned out that my mate matt had been listening to your podcast for quite a while and he sort of researched it and so then i started to listen to your podcast i listened to and started to read what other people had said and it made complete sense ben that there's many things in life i'm sure of and that was one thing i'm absolutely positive on that's what it was it was big black it was a big cat so ever since then, Ben, yeah, I, I'm a little bit cautious when I go out at night. Sometimes I've got to let the horses out late at night. I'm a little bit mindful. I'm a little bit nervous, to be honest, Ben. But I, I take the shotgun with me. I've got a round in the chamber. If you were a big cat and you wanted to disappear in there, they'd never find you. There's literally hundreds of thousands of acres behind us, Ben, that you could just disappear into. There was something there that was big and powerful and it scared me. In the late 70s, the farmers in Quartering never second-guessed themselves with what they were seeing. They knew the land, and they knew it better than anyone. As David O'Reilly continued to publish more and more articles on the events down in Quartering, they eventually received the attention of an Australian biologist and cougar expert named Lynn Hancock. Lynn Hancock had been living in Canada at the time doing a thesis on cougars at Simon Fraser University. Lynn Hancock became a crucial cornerstone in efforts to unravel the perplexing enigma of the Cordoran Cougar. Lynn raised two female cougars, which she later on donated to Perth Zoo. While living in Canada studying cougars, Lynn Hancock's mum had been sending her David O'Reilly's articles in the Post. Lynn also found out that the farmers from the southwest had been visiting the very two cougars that she donated to Perth Zoo, so they could get a comparison on what it was that they were seeing. The possibility of cougars existing back in her homeland fascinated Lynn so much that in 1980, when she made a trip back to WA, she couldn't wait to get down to Quartering and investigate for herself. Now living on Vancouver Island, home to hundreds of cougars, Lynn has authored over 20 books, including Love Affair with a Cougar. I couldn't wait to get straight to the point with Lynn and ask her what she thought of the stories in Quartering, and if they are there, why is it so hard to find them? Most people on Vancouver Island or other parts of Canada will never, never experience seeing a cougar. Even though the cougar is Canada's largest member of the cat family, it is one of the shyest. The scarcity of sightings is even more surprising considering their widespread range. 
you can find cougars from South and Central America and Mexico up to Southern Alaska and the Yukon and the Northwest Territories down to the tip of South America. They exist in all provinces in Canada, but they're not often seen. I would tell you that hardly anybody in Canada has ever seen a cougar and hardly anybody in Vancouver Island has ever seen a cougar or a game animal. The hunters come up from the USA and pay lots of money to be taken out. They pay a local hunter who has got trained hounds, trained hunting dogs to find a cougar for them. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But you have to have hounds. You can't find a cougar just by walking through the bush. They can jump 40 feet up a tree. They can run 45 miles an hour. They're efficient killers. They have a lot of different prey. They're opportunists everywhere in many different habitats. You see, they're all over. They have been noted in many, many different habitats from the Arctic Circle right down to South America. For me, it would be wonderful if I could find cougars in Australia, you know, if I could spend six months going around looking for them. But I'd have to have some hounds. Yeah, I'd be with a hunter because they're such a secretive, shy cat. You just don't find them, you don't see them. I live on Vancouver Island, nobody I know has ever seen one. I was studying cougars uh, in the wild when I was at Simon Fraser University and doing it with Jack Bone, who was the Fish and Wildlife Officer in the Okanagan. And my mother at this time was uh, sending me cuttings of cougars in Australia. I had married a wildlife biologist and, and I, I had all these animals to look after. And I had to put a couple in the zoo. I had to find homes for two of them. And so I sent two of them to the South Perth Zoo and they became part of the Cougar Project. Well, on one of my trips home to see mum and dad, Jack and I drove down to Cornering and we were welcomed by um, I remember the names very well, Dennis Earnshaw, Ross Earnshaw, Charlie Sumner, Jim Putland, Bob Crawford, Henry Marsh, Tom Abbott, Ian Milroy, and, and, uh, and Kath Stoopley did the driving. She drove me around to visit all these people. Dennis and Ross Earnshaw, they, they described hearing loud screams at night in the bush, but other quartering members uh, said that they, um, they were bigger than foxes and they had short legs but long bodies with sway backs and long tails. Features definitely indicative of cougars. Professional hunters are sighting as close as 70 yards away of an animal that they described as cougars. So I was really very impressed by the attitude of these quartering farmers. At least they weren't cats, you know, domestic cats. I was impressed that these farmers certainly knew they weren't the ordinary cats. They had no reason to pretend. They had no reason to look for it, something that, that came up. They didn't plan it. All their stories are so much the same. And they, they just sounded like people are just making things up or trying, there's no reason to. And they had to, they had to face a lot of ridicule that they didn't change their belief. I was impressed by the honesty of the farmers. Kat Stoopley, who drove us around the farms and introduced us to the farmers that were in the quartering committee, she had got my zoo cougars to run over sand to learn what authentic cougar prints looked like. Ula's and Natasha's tracks were much bigger than those seen in the quartering area, but Mr. Brooker, the keeper, explained the difference was because my zoo cougars were hand-fed, caged and restricted in their movements compared, of course, to wild animals that are thought to be cougars, so they grew bigger. 
this is an actual kill. I'm going to read this one because this is uh, one of the researchers that I uh, interviewed in California. I interviewed him in 1977, just before I went to quartering. And it's one of the very few observations I have of an actual kill. So they can take this actual cougar kill and they can see how it differs from what they saw in Australia. So I, I'm quoting now from Mark Ferrari, a cougar researcher in California. The cougar grabs onto the deer's hind haunch as the deer is running away, and it actually crawls up and onto the back of the deer. She pulls the deer off the ground onto herself with her massive forearms and bites the back of its neck. At the same time, she's protecting herself from the deer's hind hooves by pushing them away with her back legs. And within two or three minutes, the deer is dead. The struggle is so intense that it's mind-boggling. After the deer's dead, the cat is totally exhausted. She wobbles, walks away and lies down, watching the carcass for 10 minutes before she starts eating. After the kill, the cougar usually drags the carcass to a tree or a thick clump of brush where adequate debris for covering is available. Debris like sticks and stones and dry leaves and small limbs of trees. One researcher observed that kills are not covered as much in densely forested areas and not as often in extremely cold temperatures. Each of the kills were buried and closely guarded from scavengers. It is fairly common for Felis conqueror to use its sharp front teeth to clip a circle of hair from the carcass. Perhaps the cat dislikes hair or wool in its mouth. Although most of the hair is nipped from the skin, and sometimes appears in a circle around the carcass, some hair is ingested and found later in stomach contents and scats. And hair was found in half of the stomachs of cougars that were found killed on Vancouver Island. Almost all my informants on Vancouver Island agreed that the cougar's preferred parts of its kill are the liver, the heart and the lungs, and the cougar's fondness for blood. Blood is very important. Many respondents say that a cougar chooses to eat the neck and the air shoulder area first because the blood, that's where the blood runs fastest. Some informants found such oddities as sheep ears in cougar stomachs, and one found deer ears in cougar scats, and sheep tails being bitten off and then discarded. But it was the liver, the heart, the lungs, and the bloody areas that were the first eaten. The most obvious thing to look for in a cougar kill is the method of skinning the animal, taking the hair or the wool off. They don't seem to like eating the meat with the hair and the wool on it. In some cases, it looks as if they have skinned the animal so cleanly they have torn the hide from the flesh. When I told Dan Lay in Canada about the Australian farmer's observations, he's determined more kills in British Columbia than anybody else, and showed him the photos. I said, do you think that cougars exist in Australia? He was sure that if they had been made in Canada, it would be obvious that they represented a cougar. If I had seen what they told me in Australia and heard what they told me in Australia, and I was in Canada getting told those things, I would say, yes, it's a cougar. I believe in the veracity of those farmers. They sounded true, what they said. The things that they showed me, they showed me scratches and scats and, and the descriptions of the sightings of the cougars. If I had seen those and got those in Canada, I would have said that's a cougar.
David's investigation inspired researchers for years after the events in Quartering, but probably none more than Darren Monks. Darren took an interest into the big cat phenomenon at a young age, and later went on to spend every spare moment he had to do his own research. Darren liked to do things the old school way before social media became a thing, which included door knocking deep in areas known to have big cat sightings. Darren, still highly passionate about big cats in WA, was kind enough to share a few stories and theories of his own. When you talk about big cats, I mean, most West Australians, if I told them there's deer in WA, they wouldn't even believe it, you know, but you know, there's actually three types of deer, well established, I've been hunting them for like 20 years, I've been, you know, in, into hunting and fishing, you know, writing for fishing magazines, and always been fascinated, anything to do with, with the bush and the, and the outdoors, so I've always kind of collated what people have told me over the years, been a high school teacher too, you know, I basically spent every school holiday I've had since the early 90s, door knockings, and meeting people. When social media uh, opened up, people started approaching me about uh, things. Um, you know, they're, they're just not lying and they have no reason to lie. And some of them, it's, you can tell it's the first time they've ever sp even spoken about it. And see, well, someone's actually genuine and interested and isn't going to laugh at them. And it's amazing how many people uh, have seen these. Nearly every decent sized country town in Western Australia has got a name for these cats. You know, the Moora Lion, the bloody Jared Ale Black Cat, the Nanup Tiger, the, the Denmark Cat, whatever, you know, they're all. Got a little, um, got all got their own little local name for them, and and when you dig around a bit out in the community, there, yeah, it's some some places just like an, an established fact that they are here. There's a lot of people out. It's like, you know, I've been hunting them at my whole life. I haven't seen one. And it's like, yeah, well, okay, mate. Well, you go to Montana, you won't see a panther either. All that hunting, you won't see a side mountain lion. First thing people go, how did they get here? And for me, coming from Margaret River, is there's a well-known town just north of uh, Bunbury called Australind. And it's a really old town, you know, it's been around for, you know, long, nearly 150 years or whatever, right? And before Federation, well, Western Australia had nothing to do with the eastern states. All our trade was basically up the Suez Canal through India and, and Britain. The other side of Australia might have been on the dark side of the moon. Australian means Australia, India. You know, they shipped out all that, all the carry trees and all that stuff and heaps of products come in from India. So there was a big trade route from WA to, to India from 1850 to 1868, around that time period, the pensioner guards. Now, there was roughly about 1,500 of them, you know, including their wives, about 2,500 soldiers who'd been pensioned off from the British Army in India came to WA to spend you know, their kind of last days in the service guarding convicts. And for these guys who had finished their military service, it was a nice way to just spend 10 years or whatever you know, looking after a few few convicts and get a little bit of land or whatever the, the government handed them out after that to kind of retire on. But yeah, all experienced um, Indian, British Indian Army army veterans. Yeah, well, they all had mascots. And a lot of them hadn't just been in, in India. Some had been from South Africa and Persia and stuff, but they could have brought in anything. So things like that could have easily happened, you know, back in the, the time period. The Darling Scarp is the, our equivalent to the Great Dividing Range. The Darling Range kind of starts not, not, not far north of Perth, all the way down to kind of like Albany, all the way down to the south coast. And that's all the kind of gravelly kind of Jarrah and, and as you get further south, Cowie Forest and stuff. And that's still a big un, unbroken bush corridor. Well, like I said, I could basically walk to Albany through there and I'd never see a soul, you know? Yeah, they've got so many places to hide with so many ruse. There, there's a lot more of these things out there than you think, you know, because how many people even report or whatever these things? When you go digging around a bit, there's so many sightings, and it's like, and if you relate that to um, cougars in North America or leopards in India, where hardly anyone ever sees them, 
there's thousands of them. There must be a lot more of these cats than we um, can wrap our, our heads around. In the old days, they were mainly all kind of browny, like, like a cougar kind of description. You know, medium brown, like German Shepherd size. And that was about 80%. But, and that was up until the kind of 70s, 80s. But nowadays, it's the opposite. It's like 80% of them are the bigger body and the black ones. That's why I can't ever work out exactly what they are. You know, it's hard enough for people to believe there's even one type of cat out there, but, you know, these big black ones and then there's these brown ones. You know, I was one of the founding members of the uh, West Australian branch of the um, Australian Deer Association. And I'll never forget one afternoon at the meeting, they were all having a bit of a joke about, about me because I'm talking about the cats and um, Bob, the professional shooter, and all the guys really respected him. And he's always a really quiet, reserved bloke. And they go, oh, what do you think? He's like, yep, and there's a couple of spots I don't go into anymore. Wouldn't go in by himself anymore, shooting at night. And he wouldn't say anymore. And that just shut them all up. We're talking about second generation farmers in their 80s now that have lived there their whole life, you know? They're not going to confuse something like that with a kangaroo or something, you know? I do a lot of hunting. I know people have been hunting elk in Montana for 50 years and they've never seen a cat until you've got uh, hounds on them. I do a hell of a lot of cat trapping, and I've trapped hundreds of bloody cats. I could go spotlighting on a farm for a week. I might see one cat. I've trapped hundreds of the bastards. Of course, I've trapped them as big as you get, but it's still just a big cat, you know, like a big house cat, you know? They're nothing compared to what, what we're talking about. All the people I speak to, they're all farmers and stuff. They know the difference. That's just um, insulting. At 9 o'clock in the morning, July 2000, I missed out on seeing one by two seconds. About three hours out of Perth, and we were hunting with Anthony. Um, he had his 270 in his hand in, and sitting in the um, passenger seat of my uh, Pajero. Slowly driving back to Perth, doing a bit of a goat drive on the way. And we're coming over a bit of a rise really slowly in the car. And just in front of us, it was a big emu, like a old man emu on the track. And it was half a dozen little, little emu chicks. So I leaned over into, into the back seat of the car where my backpack was to get my camera out. Then Anthony suddenly screamed out, dog, at the top of his voice. And I turned around and looked, you know, I could have only been a second or two, and I looked around, you know, and I said, where's the dog gone? And Anthony goes, oh, it's gone over the fence. And I thought, what? And that got me wondering, what, what the hell is I know? That ruse can't even make it over that, that particular stretch of fence. And I could see Anthony, I was in a big fluster and all that, and it took me a minute or so to get any sense out of him. Never seen him so kind of tongue-tied. And I'm going, what dog? How could a dog get over that fence? And he might have screamed out, dog. And I guess he had to. I mean, what's, what's in your mind? You're not sitting there thinking, oh, a cougar. But I'm grueling him. He's quickly describing something like any, any dog that looked like a dog or could have behaved physically what a dog could have done. And after a minute of like cross-examining of that, drove up to the spot and you could see the two really good paw impressions. I got a good photo where it must have gone to jump and then hit the track and then go over, spaced about 15, 20 centimetres apart, facing the fence. So if I put my fist down on the ground, that's about, about the size of it. If that was a dog, there would have been deep nail marks in there. So, you know, it all kind of adds up a bit, doesn't it? And we spent a couple of hours there driving around in circles and walking and scanning. And, and the next weekend, this is how serious we were, it made a big effort just to go in there and just comb the whole place for, for, for a day. But they couldn't find anything. After hearing about Darren's missed opportunity, I spoke with his mate Anthony to explain what exactly it was he saw. Darren had sort of stopped the car and he was leaning over the back seat to get his camera out. And uh, I just saw this thing, like, you know, bleep over the road and over the fence that was to the running to the right, you know. This thing just went over the road, didn't touch the road at all. So from one side to the other, and then straight over the fence, you know, didn't touch the fence. So 
we just yeah sort of blew me away sort of so quick though too you know and uh, just disappeared into the bush on the right hand side uh, over the fence you know Darren Darren being the person he is he made me draw it so within the hour I was like out the back of our house sketching a sketching a picture for him and uh, the tail would have easily been as long as body of the animal itself quite thick from looking at that we we sort of I sort of started thinking big cat. We drove up to roughly where we went and we looked around and we, we think we got like a, a nice paw mark. Like um, it was just that one jump across the track and over the fence and then it's like into the bush, you know. So the head, quite a short sort of snout, rounded ears, you know. So I don't know, like a brownie grey, you know. That's pretty much the story, I guess, you know. After Darren had sort of made me draw it out, I was pretty certain it was a big cat, like cougar mountain lion sort of thing. The pine pine plantation was on the on the left of the track, and the fence was on the right of the track, sort of thing. And it's come out of the pine plantation, gone over the fence into the like the scrubby bush in the next paddock. I, I think there's you know a fair bit of evidence to suggest that there there might be some sort of big cat out in the bush around the place. Like you've got a lot of stories on that. Definitely seemed to be like uh, like a cat pad. It would have been bigger than my fist. You know, we went up to well, where I saw it, sort of crossed the road, and that. And I, we like, we scouted around there for a little while, and we sort of. Obviously, first thought, I just thought dog because, you know, you're not really expecting a cat. But um, then sort of in hindsight, you're thinking about, you know, how quick it was. And dogs don't seem to have that quite that nice fluid move that a cat does, you know, so. Darren Monks was kind enough to get me in touch with several other witnesses who were happy to share their first-hand accounts. After launching his tinny to do a spot of fishing, Quinton shares an incredible experience that he now thinks about every day. Um, it was Harvey, a small town down in our southwest, and there's a, a local dam for water catchment used to be used for irrigation purposes. Now it's, it's still used for that, but other purposes as well. Launched me boat first thing in the morning. It was very, very early. Yeah, just chasing redfin perch and trout. Cruised around a bit of a bend in the, the dam. Probably only there for maybe 15 minutes, just sort of slowly cruising around from one of the arms of the dam, came around the bank, and there it was straight in front of me. There was a cat coming down a bit of a hill, walked over a log, like a decent-sized log, and sort of sat there having a bit of a drink. And I stopped and just sat there looking at it in sort of amaze, I suppose, watching it. I knew exactly what it was. It was was so obvious it was just a a big black cat the size of German Shepherd I suppose big long tail as clear as day it was crystal clear morning and it was just so clear it was just like panther or yeah it was jet black the size of a German Shepherd tail probably close to a metre long big head on it and yeah it was just a beautiful graceful animal it was even if I had a gun I probably wouldn't have been able to take a shot I was dumbfounded by it and I just sort of twitched the motor off and just, just sat there watching it they're wishing I had me phone to take a photo of it. There's a pile of cattle grazing on the side of the hill and they yeah, took off pretty quick, so they obviously knew it was a bit of a threat. And it's very, very hilly terrain. There used to be like a, a deer farm down there, and now there's a few deer roaming around, but there's also a lot of feral pigs and foxes. It's very, very hard terrain to try and sort of walk. You could walk all day long and only cover a couple of kilometres, and it's not the easiest place to, to go and walk around. You go from uh, a gravel edge dam up into grassy sort of hills with jarrow line trees and forestry and then there's uh, bracken undergrowth which you could be a metre away from it and not see it. It gets very dense and very thick in, in spots. It could easily use one of those as a major highway to sort of get between waterways and it, it could keep going further inland as far as it wants to and no one would ever see it or stop it because 
once you get over the hills, there's very, very, very little farming, just national forest. There's everything from kangaroos, rabbits, pigs, deer, foxes. Yeah, I'd definitely never run out of food, that's for sure. So I come out of the tree line, down over the gravel, there's a log because it used to be like an old cattle corral or yard and one of the logs is laying along the edge of the bank and it sort of stepped over that. Like it didn't have to jump over it, just stepped over it and then came down right to the water's edge and just sort of squatted down and had a drink like a normal cat would. It didn't seem to be phased by anything, just had a, a decent drink and then turned around and wandered off up the hill. It sort of followed a tree line up. I was lost sight of it as it took off up the hill but probably looking at it for at least probably a good minute. I would have expected if something like that knew that I was there, I thought it might have been afraid, but it may have also felt comfortable enough because I was out on the water, didn't think I was a threat. Because they'd be used to human traffic around there, because you get a lot of fishermen down there and people marining and you know, even people going for picnics and swims and things. So, you know, it'd be used to people being in the area. So obviously it's home and it hunts there, eats there and it drinks there and yeah, lives there. You know, I guess it made it a little bit unsettling going down there camping, but to me, I don't think it'd ever be a threat to a human because we're, we're probably a bigger threat to it than it is to us. I've shot plenty of feral cats, started bow hunting and then got into shooting when I was out in the wheat belt, and I've shot plenty of feral cats, and yeah, you get the odd big cat, but nah, this was just three, four times the size of, of the biggest feral cat I've ever seen. It was massive, yeah. To me, I feel very lucky to be able to see something so mysterious and so rare to see. I definitely wasn't afraid. I was just more excited to be able to see something, you know, in the wild like that. It was, it was amazing. To me, it was amazing. As I say, I just wish I had something to be able to capture the moment, to be able to prove to other people that they are out there. And yeah, I'm sure there's probably some people who think I may have imagined it, but I'm 100% sure that I saw it. Yeah, I'm they're definitely convinced that they're out there. Not long after Quinton's sighting, and in the same location, Kurt shares an interesting experience he had when he took his sons out camping. We used to fish Harvey Weir a lot. It was a great spot, you know, to go out there and camp with my kids. So I took my son and their, their friends just camping, just up around the corner of the dam. Just, just take, take the boys out there, just have a fish and let them have a run around, get the dog out. And we had a, my dog Kelsey with us at the time. And that night, I remember the, the dog woke up, because we used to sleep with the back of land crews at the tailgate down. And what happened is um, the dog sat up, so I woke up. And she was very, very distressed, I could tell. And you could hear the kangaroos absolutely belting into the fence further up. Two in the morning, I just remember listening to these kangaroos absolutely belting it across the sort of the open area and going up and over a fence into the forest. You know? And there was a lot of them. So you could really, it was like a bit of a mini stampede. It was something that obviously really freaked them. I thought, oh, that's a bit strange. And then it just went all quiet. Fell back to sleep, didn't think anything of it. Next morning, we went for a walk just up the river where we'd been and found a, a very fresh sort of young kangaroo carcass. The carcass wasn't there the night before. My son found it first. He goes, oh, Dad, look at this. And I went over there. And the interesting thing is the dog went over there. And she sniffed it, but she was, looked very, very concerned. She didn't look like she wanted to fresh dead meat. You'd think, oh, a dog would be straight onto it, but she didn't. You can see where it's, it's eat, eaten the head, most of the ribs one side. The intestines out and laid them next to the, the body. You can see where it had gone in, right into the cavity and eaten out the, the kidney. And very, very neatly chewed off the ribs. Yeah, I've hunted and fished all my life, and there's no way in the world it was killed by anything other than a cat. I've, I've seen where, you know, other predators have killed things. I've seen, you know, a dog sort of attack sheep. There's no way in the world a fox could have taken down this kangaroo. And just the amount of meat that was eaten. 
And the thing was, it wasn't there the night before because we walked up through that spot. It made me feel very uneasy because you you stop and your brain starts to just try and calculate what you're looking at. And you go through all the all the regular things, oh, could this have been another dog? And then when you, you look at it closely, you, you start to come to the realisation that, no, this is a very, very unusual kill. And it, it just really reflects back on what I knew about what big cats do. And what made it even scarier is when you see pictures of wallabies and things over east killed in almost exactly the same way, the amount of meat eaten, where it's eaten from. You sit there and go, oh, that's just too much of a coincidence. I've always had a fairly open mind, but it's funny, it's not until you actually either see one or see something like I found that you think, you know what, there's definitely a lot of evidence that they're there. Or if you physically see one, you know for sure probably a bit of a hot spot. I've heard other stories out there something hit the press not so long ago about some people over here who are actually trying to get thermal drones at night because one of the local farms out there had actually heard a lot of screams and seen things. I think I always thought it, you know, a definite possibility, not just a bit of folklore, but that really cemented it to me that, you know, you're, you're certainly not alone out there in the bush. So, yeah, and then we had to stay out there the next night. You know, I didn't sleep a wink. Mark and four of his mates were travelling in two cars one night through Australind when a black animal walked out in front of both cars. Didn't expect in a million years we'd actually see something like it. We had uh, four of us, uh, me and my mate uh, in my car and my other mate and his friend in their car and they were in front of us and we're heading to Dunsborough which is uh, 250k south of Perth and we'd left at probably 8 o'clock at night from memory um, it was dark, definitely dark, no two ways about that we'd just gone into a town called Australind, I remember seeing the sign Australind and I thought okay we're not too far away now and because he, he was in front he had the high beams on and instantly I could see to the left of his car um, a massive big black shape and not, not a dog nothing else, it was just like a big black shape as he went past it he must have spooked it that pounced off into the bush so we got a full side profile of it and it was big it was bigger than a dog definitely bigger than an Alsatian 100% no doubt about that and it had the big long tail curved up it's what I thought from memory the size of the of the body almost it's massive long tail it had a glossy black appearance as with the lights that were shining off it my mate who's in the passenger seat Lee this bloke happens to be the biggest skeptic of everything never believed in a million years and uh he was looking at me with his mouth open going wow that was no kitty cat that was that was something else I just went I hope those guys seen that after we got went past it the next servo we both pulled over and the guys in front ran up and they said the same thing did you see that that was unbelievable and when I mentioned stuff to people since they've all said the same thing oh Nah, it's just a just a feral cat gone big and I said not a chance in the world they do get big I've, you know we used to go shooting and that you see and they're big but they're nothing like this never bigger than an Alsatian and this was huge you know, our memories have not faded since we remember exactly what we all seen the first thing I thought of as soon as I seen it was Darren I thought I've got to contact him yeah I just really wanted to convey to him what I'd just seen which was yeah, in my mind and my mate who's seen it and the other guys in front 100% there's nothing else that it could have been it can't it was definitely not a dog and it was no um, feral cat it was just a big cat from what I've been hearing there are really good reports 100% could only be big cats like some pretty big farm animals being taken down by the throat dragged but the properties that they're on farmers and they don't want to get getting out whether they think the shooters will go out there during the night they just don't want um the attention from it 
Uh, these particular animals, like I always say to people, they're not a mythological animal like a dragon or anything. These are real animals that do exist. Well, how they got here, I don't know. But yeah, even in those countries where these are found, they, they go off to die. They bury their own poo. They're pretty hard to see in the wild anyway. So in the bushland in the southwest of Western Australia, it's pretty thick and pretty hard to get into. So who knows what's out there? And to see that with my own eyes, there is nothing else I can, can say, well, it could have been this or it could have been that. There is nothing else. It was so big. Tail was so long. They are out there 100%. They, they probably don't pose a threat to anyone, but they are definitely they're definitely out there 100%. I know what I've seen. I think people need to have that uh, encounter to believe it for sure for themselves. David and his wife Jody were travelling near Ravensthorpe where they claimed to have seen not one, but two large creatures that, in their words, resembled a black panther. It was uh, 10 years ago, we were heading from Albany back towards Esperance and we were roughly around 50 kilometres uh, west of Ravensthorpe. I remember actually seeing one of the kilometre pins on the side of the road not long after we saw these two, what I'm going to say, definitely panthers. I was actually overtaking a car with a caravan at the time and as I was overtaking, Jody, my wife said to me, what the heck is that? These two large cats. And when I'm saying large, I remember looking at them as they were crossing the road. The first one that I was taking note of, it was as wide as a lane of the road in width. So it was quite long and its tail curled up at the end. And both of them had that distinctive tail. There was two of them. And there's, there's only one thing that I could say that they were was panthers. It just, there's no way that it could be anything else. We had a good look at them. They didn't really run across the road in a hurry. They were taking their time. But I do remember when, after seeing them, we slowed up and I tried to look into the scrub to where they'd gone and we couldn't see them. They, they'd just vanished. It was, it was really eerie, very eerie. Not long after speaking to people about these two panthers that we saw, we've had people say, oh, you've seen the, the Ravensort tiger or you've seen the Ravensort panther. So obviously there has been stories around over, the, over time. I do a fair bit of spotlighting and shooting, um, and I've seen some pretty big feral cats. I would say if they were sitting upright, a feral cat would probably only come up to half of this animal's chest in height if they were sitting side by side. With the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I estimate these two would have been 50, 60 kilos. They were, they were massive and very muscular as well. You could see it from the distance. We saw them that they were quite muscular, jet black. I've got a red healer and these things would eat my red healer for breakfast. At the next town, Ravensthorpe, I remember speaking to the people that we overtook towing the caravan. They pulled in and I went and had a chat to them and said, did you guys see that? And they said, yes, we did. I got talking to them and said, we think we saw two panthers, and they're like, well, that's what we think we saw as well. And the, the two that we saw were identical, fully grown. That also suggests to me that they're definitely out there breeding. Growing up as a kid, I've heard these stories of these things, and I thought, yeah, what a load of waffle. But when you see them with your own eyes, and then there's another person with you, and you see two at once, there's no doubting that they are here in Australia, and they're panthers. That's the only thing I can describe them as. Nando shares the moment he was out spotlighting as a young fellow and instantly formed the belief that all this big cat folklore might actually be real. The Jinjin Moor River area, along the Moor River, I was about 17, 18 as we were like hunting and then on property shooting a few kangaroos. Like, because we were spotlighting as we shined to look around in the paddock. But well, we saw like black cat with yellowy eyes, jet black, and the eyes just stand out, you know what I mean? Like the eyes were the main thing. 
as soon as we saw it, and the driver goes, don't you take that spotlight off it, and just bolted straight to the fence line. And we got out and we went up to the fence line and we saw like four marks, but because it's that beach sand, it was dry, pity it wasn't wet. When you actually know, and three other guys have seen it, your hair is raised every time, you know what I mean? You can feel the difference. Once you've seen something like that when you're younger, you get the eerie thing on the back of your head that's saying it's always watching, you know what I mean? Yeah, we all get the hairs raised up when we talk about it. Yeah, we did get a good look. It was definitely panther-looking object. I can't see anything else that could match it, so all, all four of us saw it. Dan was a huge sceptic on the idea that big cats might be out there, but one day, all in a matter of seconds, that all changed. My sister and her husband, they just recently bought a house down in this new development called Carrie Park, which is just outside of Bunbury. And uh, my girlfriend and myself and my dog will go for a bit of a wander out back and check out some of the bush. So as we're walking across the fields of all the, you know, the straw and the grass and basically a plane, before we got to the tree line, we saw kangaroos and we thought, oh cool, my dog just freezes, absolutely freezes. And then only about 20 metres ahead of us, really, really close, this giant, giant beast just dance up and it looks like it was stalking these kangaroos. It stopped, it saw us, the kangaroos saw it, then the kangaroos bolted and then this thing just took off. I mean, it went fast, it was so quick. And then I thought, Jesus Christ, that's a puma or something. I, I just couldn't believe, I couldn't believe what I was looking at, that it was actually right there. It was heaps bigger than my dog. I had a bull terrier, and this thing was way bigger, way bigger than my dog. I mean, this thing could have killed me. Piece of cake. It wasn't a cat. This thing was something that belonged in a zoo. We got no chance. No chance at all. My dog just froze. We froze. Because I just thought, like, this thing is so close. This thing was really muscular, and it was like tan, like a browny tan skin. It had a darker muzzle, it had darker tips on its ears, a bit fluffy on the ears, and it had a really long tail with a dark tip of um, hair on its tail. It was just one of those things that you just don't... I, I didn't think that they were even in Australia. I just thought it was an old wives' tail, and it was just bullshit. This was not domesticated cat that got wild. No way, this thing stood like thigh height, man. This thing was not a little cat. And besides, I was like 20 meters away from this thing. I was really, really close to it. It just, there was no mistaking, man, what I saw. They're not even supposed to be in Australia, but clearly they are in Australia. But why hasn't anyone seen a skeleton? You know, why hasn't someone got one on video? Why hasn't, why aren't there any photos? When they do find it, all the people have said bullshit to me, I can say, you know what, pick that up your ass. You know, people have been hunting elk in Montana for 50 years and they've never seen a cat until you've got uh, hounds on them. A lot of bush out there and, I mean, if something was out there, you'd struggle to find it. What they probably should have done was got some dogs in from somewhere, trained on cougars, you know, and maybe tracked them. As farmers from the southwest learned more about how cougars were able to be captured in their own countries, the pressure started building on the APB to use the same methods down in quartering, tracking dogs. Them hounds smell of it, but they always knew the way the tracks went. They would sniff around and you couldn't fool them. You can't just go walking through the bush and look for them, you won't find them. They're shy, secretive animals. You have to do it with dogs, you have to have hounds. But living in Australia, there were always going to be a few setbacks compared to places like Montana and Canada. 
lacking in snow to produce a good paw print and holding a scent for much longer meant they'd have to do things differently. When what the APB deemed as a credible sighting was reported, the plan would be to get a highly trained sniffer dog there at first light, just to ensure the scent would remain on the dewy grass for as long as possible. Eager to put this story to rest once and for all, the APB reluctantly called on a champion tracking and obedience dog. At the time, this German Shepherd was the best we had. The dog's name was Koenig. Rick and Honey Richardson played a major role in the promotion of German Shepherds, which at the time were a controversial breed, often painted as fierce and dangerous animals. The Richardsons had trained one of Western Australia's most extraordinary German Shepherd dogs named Koenig. Koenig had been used by the state emergency services and police in tracking lost humans and animals and had been extraordinarily successful. He was, to put it quite simply, a remarkable dog. I was able to get in touch with Koenig's owner, Honey Richardson, who was more than happy to take a trip down memory lane. Honey shares with me a little about Koenig's background and how the invite down to Quartering all came about. I was very deeply involved with training dogs of all breeds. I was a member of the German Shepherd Dog Association. I was already a, a trainer with the German Shepherd Dog Association. I became their training supervisor and remained in that position for 45 years. I suppose that made Koenig a rather special dog. In my eyes, he was a very special dog. He was an Australian obedience champion, a family dog, and a dog who would do anything that he was asked to do. He was very easy to teach. When we got the phone call from the APB, it was uh, Des Gooding who asked whether he would be willing to bring Koenig down south and said there is a belief that there is a large cat. The people down in Quartering believe they have a, a cougar in the area killing the stock. He needed a good tracking dog and of course he knew of, of Koenig's reputation. Eric said to Des Gooding, well, how about organising for us to have some cougar scent? Our dog was trusted with the task of going down there and putting on the track of the latest sighting of the cougar. There was every possibility of, of there being a cougar. It, it was quite surreal. After obtaining cougar scent from Lynn Hancock's Cougars in Perth Zoo, Rick and Honey put Koenig through a strict training regime to see if he was up for the task. And as usual, they never doubted him for a moment. Rick and I were in overdrive, absolutely in overdrive. We drove out to the Nangara Pine Plantation. It, it was just a never-ending forest. I jumped on my bicycle and I had a long, slender bamboo pole. We tied a bit of rope to that cloth, stinky cloth. My scent would not be on the cougar cloth. It would not be on the bushes that I slept with a cloth and it would not be on the trees. I cycled away with the slender pole across my handlebar and once in a while reached up high into a gum tree, rustled across the ground, then slapped at what I thought was cougar height across the bushes, just so that the tracking dog would have several challenges where the scent would be. It was Rick in a car, writing down what I was doing, mapping what I was doing. Big gum tree on the right, or the, the Albany woolly bush on the left. Wherever I had lifted the cloth off the ground and slapped the bush with it, that was on Rick's note. 
König jumped up at the tree to you know, smell the scent up on the tree. He dived into the Albany Rushing to see whether the scent led on from there. Then he came back onto the main track where it was trailed on the ground. He just ticked them off. We would not know when the phone call would be there, but we were prepared. Somebody had said they had seen the cat cross over the road. I, I was practically in a daze. I couldn't believe it. I was so looking forward to finding evidence. What that would be, we had no idea. It was pitch black. It seemed to be driving forever. I remember the excitement of finally, finally, this being D-Day for us to help find evidence. My heart was pounding as I wondered it didn't burst my ribs. This is driving into something with trepidation. But what would we find? We went down with two dogs. Cherie was also a very accomplished tracker. Cherie could be set on the backtrack, tracking the animal to where it had come from, and we would put Koenig in the direction of where Koenig said it was going. It was the morning when we uh, arrived. Uh, there's a group of people near, near the farmhouse. They had seen the cat cross over the road. We jumped in the car again. We had Koenig ready. We had Klaus and Julia ready with Cherie. We firmly believed Koenig was not going to track a pussycat. He was not going to track a dog. He was not going to go jump onto a root track. Koenig would track a dog when we gave him the scent of, of a dog. He would track a cat when we gave him the scent. If he got onto a scent, it was a scent that we gave him. Cougar scent would be so alien, so different from anything we had asked him to do. If he found a scent that was very much like this, then that's what he would pursue. We, we didn't doubt that for a moment. A well-trained dog will also be able to give you a, a negative uh, indication. He'll say, it's not here. We concentrated on getting Koenig familiar with the scent and being able to locate that scent in the bush and in the forest. The clarity comes in when I felt Koenig tug on the leash. And when you get that electrifying tug on the lead, you know he's got the scent got what he was looking for and I just thought he's got it and was like an electric shock in my system he's onto something that was the moment when I was just flooded with fear whatever it is it was here if we are close to it okay where is it how far are we away from it how close are we to it that's probably the first time that I was very aware of hunters with rifles behind us. The hunters, yeah, the farmers of the, the area are experienced hunters, very experienced. I don't know whether anybody had a camera with them, they, they all had guns. <laughs> I didn't see any cameras. Then there was just no thought except focusing on the dog. When they're close, when they get the scent cone of whatever track they're on, and they got the scent of the victim or missing person or whatever, but when they get in the scent cone, you know, the dog is vibrant, he's quivering with every nerve. He charged over to a tree, 
König just looked back, practically saying, can I? Then he stuck his nose on that branch and leapt up on the tree. He's a very, very tall dog. He's a very large German Shepherd. He raised himself up on the tree and located scratch marks. There were scratch marks that a dog of, of normal size would not have been able to put his nose on. There was loose bark, there was damage, and it, it looked as though a large animal had vaulted over that, kicking off his hind legs on that scratch. Kuni looked at that, he looked at me, he looked at that, and just pointed to those scratches. An animal had left that mark, either leaping up onto an even taller branch, or stopping for the moment, stretching themselves and deliberately scratching. The way cats will sometimes sharpen their claws, marking the territory. If that was anything, anything the size of the animal to leave those marks, a dog couldn't do it, a roo couldn't do it. It was a large tree. If the cat marked that, it was certainly no pussy cat. What else is big enough? We were out there hunting a cat with a dog that knew cougar scent. I was pretty certain we had found a first piece of evidence that could be photographed, it could be documented, it could be measured. I thought this is a fresh damage on a tree. To me it was hot evidence of us being on the trail of an animal that just recently had gone through that. I thought this is it. Koenig has located a scratch mark on a tree where a cat has stretched up or else jumped up trying to get higher and the raking hind claws made that mark. Whatever caused the mark, the mark was real. We had actually found something. We had trained a dog to do something in case it eventuated and here it is. He was doing it. He had located a scratch mark on a, on a tree. Just what we thought a panther, a cougar, a puma might do, here it's a proof an animal had done it. So yeah, it surprised us that, that we actually found proof. We were not surprised that Kudik found it. It, it, it was even a threatened dog. We had these scratch marks and there had to be pad marks where it landed. Now, we were looking for the imprint of the cat landing. We looked for tracks and we found something I thought was, was definitely a large footprint. Just one, just one print uh, of a forepaw. It, it was a round print, there were no claw marks. It was not a dog print. A dog print is, is always slightly oval. Landing with the weight of an animal, you would definitely expect to see nails if it was a dog, and there were no claw marks of a dog on that print. The tracks that we saw were certainly not pig prints, absolutely not pig damage. The, the size of the print, Koenig was a huge German Shepherd. This creature was bigger than Koenig, the print was bigger than Koenig. This round pad mark, I think, was a cat mark. We, we believe that that was the first physical evidence. The fact that the dog was tracking it, the fact that we are the owners and the trainers and the handler of the dog, of course we have faith in the dog. Right as Koenig was hot on the trail of the scent, the APB official called off the search, leaving the Richardsons, as well as local farmers, frustrated and confused. 
certainly if anybody was tired, it wasn't the dog, it wasn't Rick, and I wasn't. We would have continued, but if the boss says this, this is it, we've seen enough, we haven't found anything, there was always a feeling that, you know, in the next half hour, we, we might have found something. I really, really, really felt certain that, that we were definitely on the cougar scent. And to add a little more salt to the wound, David O'Reilly noticed that the APB skipped over very important detail when they went on to write their report. We made arrangements with the owners of a German Shepherd tracking dog to scan areas when a sighting was made by a reliable person. To date, two such visits have been made, but no success has been obtained in finding any evidence to support the reported sighting. The officers responsible for this report neglected to ask Rick and Honey Richardson what they thought their dog, Koenig, was eagerly chasing through the quartering area on two occasions. Jeff Martin was there with 20 or so local farmers, all carrying rifles, just in case Koenig was able to find what they were sent out to look for. It seemed that even the APB didn't want to take any chances should they stumble across an apex predator. There was about 20 of us, mate, following the dog. Whatever scent they put in front of his snout, he'll follow that scent. Whatever he smells on the rag, that's what he follows. This is how the bloody uh, airport bloody dogs are trained, you know. But he was on the set, there's no doubt about that. I mean, Christ, I, bloody, I was there, I saw it, saw it firsthand. When you've got moisture, ice and moisture on the ground, the scent will stay around. And well, the Minister of Agriculture at the time was a bloke called Des Gooding. But he wouldn't. No, 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 we're giving up now. No, it's gone too far. It wasn't the biggest. Des, Des Gooding was too freaking useless, and that's he stopped. He called it off. He called it off. Just like he was trying to get out of it. The owner and master of the dog said, Koenig is on a hot, hot trail. Let that Koenig go, and he probably would have treated it, and that would have been all over now. Totally impractical people. Absolutely bloody useless. If they let the owner, Go and uh, just let Kearney go. He would have treated for sure, but that wasn't that wasn't allowed. You know how dare the APB find a, a cougar in, in in Western Australia? I'm convinced that there was a quartering cougar out there, and it can't live forever. And they're either still there, but we just don't hear about them. Perhaps with all the hoo ha we had over that time. They became more secretive and, and retired further back into the bush and did what cats will do, just silently slip away, never to be seen again. It's a mystery, full of memories that I cherish, memories and impressions that will never leave me. And I believe there's something out there in quartering. I still do. If you believe you've seen a panther or a big cat in the Aussie bush, experienced stock kills you couldn't explain, or have information of how these animals might have come to be here, please get in touch via our website, missingpanther.com.au. Get us through the contact page. Just remember, if you do get in touch, all information is kept private unless otherwise discussed, and there's no pressure whatsoever to go on the podcast. So if you think you've got some information that will help and want to remain anonymous, please don't hesitate to reach out. 
I want to take this moment to thank all of those who have supported Missing Panther through our donation link. Every cent, no matter how big or small, has been greatly appreciated. If you'd like to help support the show, go to our webpage, missingpanther.com.au. Hit the About button, scroll down, and follow the prompts. Also, while I'm asking for favours, if you could take a moment to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Review and tell us your thoughts on the series so far. Don't forget to find us on Facebook or Instagram to keep updated on future episodes. Voiceover of David O'Reilly is by Mike Williams, author of Australian Big Cats, An Unnatural History. If you haven't already, go to Amazon now and get yourself a copy. For further reading on Big Cats in Western Australia, Savage Shadow is a staple for any quality bookshelf, written by David O'Reilly and also available on Amazon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Lynn Hancock's work or wish to purchase one of her many books, go to her website, lynnhancock.com. And don't forget to get your delicious beers from Mick and the crew at Yarra Valley Big Cat Beer Co. Go to yvbcbc.com to place your order. For continued Big Cat stories, tune in to Big Cat Conversations, a fantastic podcast created by Rick Minter, who's been delving deep into the Big Cat phenomenon in the UK. Special thanks to Maddie Glenn, Kieran Shinjo and Roz Abbott. Missing Panther is edited and narrated by me, Ben Bede. Music is by Warwick Party. Mastering by Paul Gomesall. Brought to you by Audio Technica.